We're finally kind of seeing a light at the end of the tunnel for the first half of the Gospel of John. Remember that this isn't going to cover the entire half. I don't have the second half of the, the Gospel uh, kind of prepared, at least in draft form. So we'll be taking a kind of an extended break from John, but it is something I'd like to get back to in a little while. We're about halfway through John chapter 10, and we'll be finishing up in John chapter 11. So we've got probably today and two additional Sundays uh, left in John would be my guess. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of see how uh, 11, or yeah, how, how 11 you know, ends up going. And uh, I'm going to be off next week. We're going to be doing something for Reformation Sunday. So the, the focus in the first half of John's gospel are seven signs that, that Jesus performs. In John's gospel, it isn't so much the supernatural character of these signs that's important, but it's what they point to. It, uh, each sign is going to tell us something about Jesus Christ. And the final two signs uh, are, are signs that are really designed to show us what it means when Jesus saves us. They're, they're very clear pictures of salvation. You know, each one reveals what salvation is from you know, a somewhat different perspective. We finished the first of those signs. That's the healing of the, blind, the man that was born blind in chapter 9. And as is typical with John, we're still dealing with kind of the, the repercussions of that. Uh, the man's sight was restored. And then, more importantly, he starts to gradually see more and more clearly what everyone else around him in that chapter won't see. He sees that Jesus is someone that's sent from God. He sees Jesus as someone that's able to save and that Jesus is worthy of worship. And no one else in the chapter is able to see that, although they're presented very compellingly with the same information. Although that man comes to see Jesus spiritually, the religious leaders won't see, despite not being able to explain Jesus' ability to heal in any other way. They eventually resort to casting the man that Jesus healed out of the synagogue simply because the healed man continues to testify about what Jesus did for him. The authorities can't deny or explain the healing, but they refuse to see the obvious conclusion. The episode concludes with the healed man seeing Jesus for who he is and worshiping him, and the religious leaders choosing to remain blind to Jesus and rejecting him. So in, in chapter 9, Jesus, uh, sorry, chapter 10, Jesus condemns the leadership of these religious leaders. Anyone looking objectively at the episode can see that the Pharisees don't care for this uh, man that was born blind, and they're unable to, to help him even if they were particularly concerned with him, which they, they certainly show absolutely no care for him. They've shown themselves to be the wicked shepherds over Israel that care only for themselves that we see discussed repeatedly in the Old Testament. They don't care for God's sheep. Jesus has just demonstrated a concern for one particular sheep, and the leaders respond by persecuting that same person, that same sheep. The second half of John 10, we've probably moved forward a little bit in time. It takes place about two months after the events that are recorded in John 7 through 8, and there, there isn't a clear indication when the events of John chapter 9 happen. They could be closer to one or closer to the other or right in the middle. There's really no way to say, and since there isn't, it probably isn't too important. But thematically, they're very much connected. Um, and so we, we don't necessarily need to worry about the time, timing very much. <clears throat> Um, one of the things that's really significant in, in these last verses in chapter 10 that we're going to be looking at is that this is Jesus' final appeal to the religious establishment. This is given only several months before Jesus' crucifixion. You know, Jesus isn't going to corporately appeal uh, to the religious leadership in Jerusalem any longer in John's gospel. 
And so we're, we're you know, in a, a, a very significant transition in the gospel. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the first part of what we're going to look at today. <clears throat> at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, to begin with, this mentions the Feast of Dedication, and if you don't recognize that from your Old Testaments, it's because it's not in the Old Testament. Um, this is commemorating the consecration of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes uh, desecrated it. Uh, specifically, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, but he did other things that were um, pretty uh, substantially bad as well during a very intense you know, persecution of anyone who attempted to, to follow you know, the, um, the, the teachings of Judaism. Um, it was a roughly three, three and a half year persecution under uh, a genuinely terrible person. Uh, and uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, led a revolt. He was able to re uh, restore things such that Judaism could be practiced again. They rededicated the temple, and it's an important enough event that another holiday, the Feast of Dedication, was set up about that. John mentions that, and so it's probably going to be important in our text someplace. We, we know, of course, that this happens about two months after the Feast of Booths, and that's where chapters 7 and 8 occur. And as I mentioned, it's not clear exactly where the healing of the blind man happens. It, it's someplace in between those two, but it really kind of could be any place in there, and uh, John doesn't really try to, to give us a way of uh, assessing the time. So, one of the things that's just worth, um, that might kind of jump out to our ears is, is, uh, is who ta is talking to Jesus. Yeah, the text describes them as the Jews. In John's gospel, John uses that consistently as a way to refer to, to those in Jerusalem, uh, primarily the religious leaders and those that were, were following them. Um, this would be kind of centered in Jerusalem, and I think that's kind of who is being referred to here. It doesn't mean all, all Jews. Uh, that the way that John uses Jews seems to refer specifically to the, the leadership in Jerusalem. So, uh, if we assume that this group knows Jesus' previous teaching to the Jews in Jerusalem, which I think is a very reasonable assumption, what are they implying in their question? And uh, their question is, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Um, and I think I'd also like to look at how Jesus' response really kind of sheds light on their motives for, for asking that question. Jesus has been really clear about who He is. He's the light. He's the living water. He's the way. You know, Jesus has performed many signs that point very clearly to who He is. They point that way partly by their supernatural character, but I think that's mainly there to kind of attract people's attention to see what the sign really 
uh, tells us. And John, I think, does a really good job of showing us that with all of the signs. Um, they show it partly by their fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament in imagery and Old Testament type. Um, they're implying that what Jesus has taught and the signs that Jesus perfor has performed aren't enough. And I think the problem then really kind of fits in with what we've been seeing in, in chapter 9, that the problem isn't Jesus' clarity, but it's their refusal to accept Jesus for the Messiah that He is rather than the Messiah that they want. The issue, of course, that we've, we've talked about this before, is what they want from a Savior. They really want a political leader that's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to provide the kingdom that um, they see promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is offering something different. They can't see the need for their forgiveness of sins or an offer of close fellowship with God as being nearly as important as what they see right in front of them, which is the Roman occupation. So they're conflicted. On one hand, God has been silent for 400 years. You know, suddenly, John the Baptist appears. He proclaims that the Messiah is coming soon and even specifies that that Messiah is Jesus. You know, then Jesus is attracting crowds. They're amazed at His teaching. Um, he's performing miracles and you know, so many signs that they, they wonder, how, how could the Messiah possibly do more signs than Jesus is doing? Uh, that's stated elsewhere in John's gospel. But He isn't doing what they expect a Messiah to do. Um, he doesn't seem to be interested in the political situation, and he's certainly not doing anything to change that. And so I, I think that what we see in these verses is that the Jews in Jerusalem are still holding out hope that Jesus is going to start acting like their idea of who the Messiah is going to be. Now, we know in, as Christians that Jesus is, in fact, a far greater Messiah. He's not preparing to offer you know, an earthly physical kingdom. He's offering uh, anyone who comes to him citizenship in God's kingdom, and that's an eternal kingdom that will never fall. He's, offering deliver he's not offering deliverance from an earthly lifetime of Roman rule. He's offering deliverance from eternal bondage, bondage to sin and all the consequences that go with that. However, um, he has just taught that only his sheep will hear his voice and follow. Those who are not his sheep won't understand what he has to say no matter how clearly he says it. They won't understand his that his message contains truth because they're stubbornly, willfully blind to seeing that. <clears throat> if Jesus were to speak more plainly about being the Messiah, his word, word still wouldn't be understood. It's not the, a problem of clarity. It, it's a problem of their willingness to accept it. So Jesus does respond to them, and the reason that Jesus gives that people should believe in him, he points to his works. And what does he mean by that? We've already talked about this, but uh, it, it's worth mentioning that you know, Jesus, I think, is certainly including the supernatural character of them in his answer. I, I think he means a lot more. Uh, he's referring to the entirety of his ministry. You know, even for the miracles, he's probably uh, pointing more towards what they signify than the supernatural character of them. In the previous chapter, you know, even a formerly blind man was able to see that Jesus was able to open his eyes physically and then spiritually. You know, Jesus' concern in the chapter was clearly for the blind man. The religious leaders didn't show any concern at all for him. They were acting as humans do. Their only concern was for their own well-being, not for the well-being of the man born, born blind. And when that you know, blind man's healing became a threat, he was persecuted uh, for, for the crime of, of seeing Jesus for who he was. The, um, 
you know, even um, the, the man's parents end up putting their own well-being above their son's well-being. They don't stand with him, um, but they just sort of try to stay neutral, but in fact end up, you know, kind of doing what the authorities expect them to do and end up taking the, the side of the, the leaders, not the side of Jesus. Um, and so that's, that's one you know, important way that we see how Jesus' works point to who He is. And we can see that sort of thing throughout John's gospel. So I think Jesus has been clear about who he is, but they don't believe. Why not? And we could certainly point to different reasons. I think at the surface, Jesus isn't the political Messiah that would meet their felt needs. He's, um, he doesn't seem to be interested. He, he only seems to be interested in dealing with sin and showing them to the Father. You know, Jesus is telling them their efforts to obey the law and to live rightly are not enough to earn God's favor, but that they need to rely on Him instead. So there's a lot of reasons I think that they would be objecting to what Jesus is saying. Um, and really things aren't all that different today. Um, you know, it's not that the gospel is unclear. It's that people tend to want something less than you know, forgiveness for their sins and eternal fellowship with God. They would rather have their best life now, or they would rather have uh, you know, problems in, in their marriage and family sorted out, or you know, many other things that, that really apply more to this life than the next life. And, I, um, and it, it's the inability to see what Jesus is really offering that you know, uh, keeps them from seeing the, the gospel. The gospel is clear. It's the only rational way to, re, to view reality. But the human mind is going to stubbornly reject it and look for reasons to do that. So, in 27 through 29, uh, Jesus' teaching starts to become very overtly monergistic. Um, And what I mean by monergistic is it's pointing to salvation being entirely from God. Uh, Monergism and Calvinism mean more or less the same thing. Uh, I, I don't like the term Calvinism because it's kind of a loaded term, and it, it kind of falsely implies that you know, the, these doctrines came from Calvin when they very much predate him. Um, <clears throat> so I'll, I'll be using monergism primarily in this study, but you could replace it with Calvinism in, in your minds if you want to. And so what I, I think is profitable to do is just to look at how much of what we think of as monergism you'd see there. It, I, I want to say that we don't need to limit ourselves to what are, are known as the five points of Calvinism when we do this. Um, just a little bit of history. In the Reformation, uh, monergistic salvation was almost universal for about a hundred years. And, and then uh, Arminius and the Remonstrants came along. There, there was you know, significant controversy over some parts of Reformed theology, not all parts. Um, you know, Arminius and then the Remonstrants accepted a lot of the, the same things that the Reformers did, but they really disagreed on God's role versus man's role in salvation. And so there was a synod of Dort, and that synod identified five different, you know, kind of main areas of disagreement, and those have become the five points of Calvinism. But you know, monergistic salvation includes more than that, so we, we don't have to limit ourselves just to those five points. The, the first thing that we come to, the, the statement, <clears throat> um, oops, and that's not the right one that's highlighted. 
um, my sheep hear my voice. <coughs> Excuse me. I think what we, we hear in that is effectual calling. Um, and, and that is that when God calls his people, he, he calls them effectually. They will hear uh, the gospel and they will believe it. Um, <clears throat> Next we see, you know, I know them and they follow me. Oh, what was that? Yes. Um, I, <laughs> well, effectual calling is another way of referring to irresistible grace. And to be honest, um, I realized that I hadn't written out the point and I didn't want to think through all five points. I find that I lose about 20 IQ points when I'm in front of an audience and I can't think on my feet as fast as I would like to sometime. So yes, uh, irresistible grace and effectual calling mean the same, same thing. Um, the, the very next statement that we come to, I know them and they follow me. Um, we, we see in that electing love and I think we're, we're still seeing effectual calling there um, when they, they follow me. That's kind of the second half of you know, hearing, the, that's a consequence of hearing God's voice. And so between you know, hearing his voice and then following, you know, there's no disconnect there. And that I think together really becomes either effectual calling or, or irresistible grace. But you know, the, the reason that, that they hear his voice, it goes back to that uh, um, electing love, which isn't one of the five points, but I think it's very central to monergism still. You know, God has, has looked uh, into history. He's seen a people. He's decided to love them. The clearest text that I know of that the Bible gives on why he decides on a specific people, I loved you because I loved you, <laughs> which doesn't answer the question to our satisfaction, but... Um, that's as far as God has chosen to go, to go in explaining why he calls some and not others and, and why he's chosen us. Um, <clears throat> you know, I give them eternal life. Um, and the emphasis in, in that statement, I mean, there's a lot in that statement, but just looking at monergism, the emphasis there even tells us a little something. It tells us that uh, the emphasis is on eternal life as being a gift from God, and you know, that would be uh, pointing to unmerited favor, um, which, which is the, the you and tulip. <clears throat> um, the next statement that we come to, you know, they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And all three of those statements are saying the same thing. It's said three times for, for emphasis, and we'll get to why you know, Jesus is emphasizing this so much, but I think that's really clearly pointing to the P in TULIP, perseverance of the saints. Um, and uh, one more just before we move on. My Father has given them to me, and that's very much pointing to predestination. Um, you know, th this was something that was organized before any of us were born. Um, but we've been predestined uh, to be Jesus' sheep. You know, salvation uh, has been previously determined and no one is lost or fails to be gathered by the Son. So a, a very straightforward reading of these verses, it's really hard to uh, avoid reading them uh, in a monergistic way. And so this brings up the question is, how would an Arminian respond to this section? 
And as far as I've seen, when Arminians look at verses like this, they'll begin by, by saying something to the effect of, these verses can't mean what they kind of sound like they're saying at the surface, because um, if, if that were the case, Jesus would simply be saying, well, you're not my sheep, there's nothing you can do about it, tough luck. And I, I think that it is clear, if you look at the broader context, that Jesus is trying to help the group of people that he's addressing. And so if that's correct, if Jesus is basically saying, you weren't chosen, nothing you can do about it, um, you're not my sheep, uh, then I, I think they're right. But, you know, I, I, I do think that Jesus is, uh, is, is trying to help them. It, uh, and I, I do think that the straightforward meaning of the verses actually is helpful. And so I, we, we need to show that if we're going to take the straightforward meaning of the verses. You, Jesus is definitely kind of sticking his neck out. And we'll, we'll see that very literally. They're about to pick up stones to kill him. Um, uh, um, and he's, he's trying to help this group to see him for who he is. And, uh, and, and so, so far, I think the Arminian argument is correct that you know, Jesus needs to be saying something more than you're not elect, nothing you can do about it. Um, it's not, that wouldn't be consistent with, with the passage. It's not consistent with the, uh, the, the gospel to, to do that. Um, <clears throat> so, let's see. So I think thinking about the audience, this is primarily religious leaders. Jesus wants them to see him for who he really is. In the language of the passage, he's calling out his sheep from among them. The problem with the Arminian line of reasoning is that they're overemphasizing some portions of what is taught in what we call monergism, but they're neglecting others. One of those is that God uses means, and it's usually very ordinary means to call his sheep. They're does need to be re supernatural regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Um, that would be uh, effectual calling or irresistible grace. But this doesn't normally happen in a vacuum. You're not just sort of sitting there playing video games and suddenly you're regenerated. Um, it, it normally happens in response to the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is faced with a very religious group. This is a group that's devoted their lives to studying the Old Testament scriptures meticulously. And they're very strict and exceedingly zealous in trying to you know, obey the, the entire law, not just the, the big ones, but the, the, the details as well. Um, they're very confident in their right standing before God, and that confidence comes from both their ethnicity uh, and from their, their very strict religious practice. Um, they, they firmly believe in the Old Testament. They've studied it deeply. They've memorized in the case of the typical Pharisee that Jesus would be talking to, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and other parts of the Old Testament as well. You know, they're strict with their tithes and their offerings. They're strict with their observance of the sacrifices and the three major re religious celebrations uh, yearly. They have strict observance of the Sabbath and they've tried to fully obey the lot of the letter. And if you kind of listened you heard a word repeated when I described what they were doing, and that word is there. It comes up again and again, there, there, there. Um, they're completely confident, ultimately, in themselves. But they have God incarnate that's standing in front of them, and they won't understand what He's trying to teach them. Um, when God performs miracles, 
they immediately seek to discredit those miracles. And when they can't discredit them, you know, they end up suppressing the miracle by trying to excommunicate anyone that speaks up for the miracle. Um, they're, they're blind to God. So the religious leaders are the, the hardest people for the gospel to reach. They're confident that they do not need any help from God. And they need to realize that they're sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. They need to realize their desperate need for a righteous standing to God. They need to know that they need to come to God for free salvation, not for something that they can earn. Um, they, they, they need to hear that they're not God's sheep, and they need to see that their actions are inconsistent with what they very firmly believe themselves to be. They need to recognize that God is in their midst right now and that they're willfully blind to His presence. You know, they need to come to God for eternal life rather than depend on their own merits. So we, I think what we have in these verses is very pointed monergistic uh, teaching. It, it's a summary of Jesus' message to them. It's not a, at all intended to taunt them that they're not among God's elect. It's a means by Jesus to try to break down the hardness of their heart to help them see that they uh, are exhibiting signs of not being his sheep and to change, that they, they need to follow him as a savior that can freely give them eternal life and a savior that will uh, eternally and perfectly protect and preserve them. And that's a point that we're going to come to in a little bit. So how should we uh, teach those who trust in themselves for salvation? Um, I think that he should try to break down their confidence and so I think when we, you step back and look at it, I think Jesus' approach makes very good sense when viewed this way. You know, he's speaking to an audience that's confident in its current, present, right standing with God. And he's pointing out that if they actually had what they thought that they have, if they had right standing with God, they would be acting very differently than they are. Um, if they were rational, they would hear that and they would, um, and they would then choose to follow him. Um, so they, they've got clear evidence that they're not God's people, and that evidence is their own actions. If they would see that and interpret it reasonably, they'd see their need, and they could see in Jesus a Savior that could meet that need. And so that would be my response to why Jesus is teaching that way, and so I think we, we very much can just take these verses at face value and um, you know, accept what, what they, I think, very, very clearly teach. I think Jesus would also emphasize that salvation is not dependent on works, but on God's sovereign choice, and that we can do nothing to earn grace from God. I mean, even the idea of earning grace just doesn't make sense because it makes nonsense of the word grace if you talk about ever earning it. Um, so a, a, an a proper response is to hum humbly beg God for grace uh, rather than to try to earn it. I think there's another reason that Jesus is uh, emphasizing uh, perseverance very heavily here. And we remember when we uh, looked, we, we saw that perseverance was emph emphasized three different times. Jesus says effectively the same thing uh, three times for emphasis. Um, let me start uh, by, by reading a section of a sermon uh, by James Boyce. We're going to be talking about Spurgeon, and then let's look at the effect that this particular doctrine had on Spurgeon. Did you know that it was these doctrines, particularly the doctrine of, the of, of God's perseverance with his people, that God used to save Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived? Spurgeon was saved when he was only 15 years old, but 
Before that time, he had already noticed how friends of his who had begun life well made shipwreck of their lives by falling into gross sin. Spurgeon was appalled by such things. He feared that he himself might fall into them. He reasoned like this, whatever good resolutions I might make, the probabilities are that they will be good for nothing when temptation assails me. I will be like those of whom it was said, they see the devil's hook and yet they cannot help nibbling at the bait. I will disgrace myself. It was uh, then that he heard the truth that Christ will keep his saints from falling. It had a particular charm for him, and he found himself saying, if I go to Jesus to get from him a new heart and a right spirit, I shall be secured against these temptations into which others have fallen. I will be preserved by them. And so if we consider John's audience, um, let's kind of think through why it is that, that uh, Jesus is emphasizing perseverance so much in these verses. Like Spurgeon, his audience undoubtedly had a tender conscience. You, deep down, at least, they, um, they, they must have known that they were capable of uh, failing, God, failing to keep God's law perfectly. And I think if they were honest with themselves, they must have been very confident that they wouldn't be able to keep God's law perfectly. I'm, I'm sure that they suppressed that at, at, at various levels, but I think deep down they knew it. Um, and, and of course, Jesus knew, knew exactly that that was there. So to, to someone in that position, how sweet should it sound to learn that um, our, our depraved sinful nature can earn right standing with God that is offered with uh, perfect perseverance included as a free gift? And that perseverance doesn't depend on our ability. It depends only on God's faithfulness. That's, I think, the part of the gospel that if they were honest with what they had experienced, they really should uh, connect with and respond to. Spurgeon did. Um, and I think, I, I'm, I'm confident that some of, of the, the religious leaders probably did eventually, maybe not right away, but I, I think that they, they would have realized at some point from what Jesus taught that. Because we, we do know that a lot of Jews uh, did come to be part of the church early in Acts. Jesus uh, concludes this section with the, the statement, I and the Father are one. And I, th I think it, it's worth asking why does the section conclude this way? And it certainly emphasizes the, the certainty with which Jesus is able to preserve his people. He will perfectly, his, his will is perfectly aligned with the Father's will. And so his point is the absolute security is, of his people. If both God and Jesus have exactly the same intention to carry something out, how could it possibly fail? Um, now, we can take a lot more than that from, from that statement, of course. It, it's a claim to deity. Um, it's an important part of how we understand the Trinity, which emphasizes simultaneously that God consists of three distinct purposes, or sorry, three distinct persons, but that the, those persons are so united in purpose that they constitute one God. The, yes. 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 <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, but the, the reason that Jesus states this important truth here, I think, is to really stress the, the perfect security that he offers. 
It's a security that does not depend on our performance, but it only depends on God. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the, the next uh, section. Oh, and there's a, a T missing there, so it should be the Jews picked up stones uh, again to stone him. Um, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe, sorry, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. Um, this is a, a section that I think is a little bit harder than the rest of the material around it to understand. So I, I think the very first thing to do is to kind of outline Jesus' response. So the crowd is about to stone him for blasphemy, and Jesus is going to defend himself. The first thing that he does is he asks the question of which work is worthy of stoning. The second one is he's pointing out that his statement is not out of line with Scripture, and that one is the one that's hard to, to understand I've got a guess, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how good it is. Um, and then his final response is to point the crowd back towards his works. And so you know, much of his response is really focused in on his, his work. He asks the crowd for which good work are they planning to stone him. Um, the Greek is a little bit different than the English word good. Uh, it's got the idea of great or noble kind of built into the... Um, the, the meaning, and so I, I think if you, if you were to assign those in there, it would probably get a little bit closer to what Jesus is really getting at. Um, and again, as I've been emphasizing throughout John, I don't think it's primarily the supernatural character of his miracles that he's emphasizing. I, th I think that it's the entirety of his teaching ministry. It's the lives that he's transformed by his teaching. You could look at uh, Nicodemus or the wo woman at the well as equally significant, great, and no noble works as, you know, healing a man that was born blind. Um, and, in fact, I would even argue that they're greater works uh, because they're, they're works that will last eternally. They're not going to give someone sight for 30 or 40 more years, uh, but they're going to give someone eternal life in the presence of God. Um, <clears throat> what, so what is, um, so why is it that Jesus is pointing to those good works? The religious leader's response to Jesus is completely out of line with what Jesus is doing. If they were to take the time to look and examine his works, they should conclude that those works could only come from a servant of God. If they thoughtfully examined their own works, they should see those as very seriously deficient. Um, they're, they're not going to do that, but they should. If the crowd recognizes the merit of Jesus' works and then the demerit of their own, they must then accept Jesus' claims. So if Jesus had only been interested in diffusing the situation, there are simpler ways that he could have done it. 
you know, he's, he has simply walked away from a crowd uh, before and not been stoned when the crowd was intending to th- stone him or throw him off a cliff or, or something. Um, you know, I think his defense here is still aimed at, at trying to help those that are actively seeking to kill him at that moment to examine their motives and to examine his works one more time. He's giving them one last chance. Um, so continuing on in, in verse 34, I'm going to just reread the, the section that I think is the most confusing, probably in, in all of chapters 9 and 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and said into the world, um, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. Um, I think a starting point that's not really going to take us towards the meaning of this yet, but it, it, it might be a little bit helpful, is the word consecrated. Uh, it's not a word that we use very often in everyday speech. Um, and if you don't go to church regularly, it might not even be a word that you have a very good idea of what it means. Um, it, it does have several meanings in Greek, but uh, set apart for a sacred purpose is the the likely meaning that Jesus intended, and it's the most common way that the, the word is uh, intended when it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And I, I think that that's deliberate. It really goes back to the Feast of Dedication, and that's celebrating the rededication, or maybe better, it's celebrating the consecration of the temple after it was defiled in the Maccabean period. And so by emphasizing that Jesus was consecrated not by you know, men who had just thrown out uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and his, uh, his government, but by God the Father, Jesus is emphasizing that he is the greater temple. Um, so Jesus' second point about the psalm and where some human beings are referred to as gods is a little bit more challenging, but I think having the, the word consecrated there in the back of our minds is going to be at least a little bit helpful. Um, some of my favorite commentaries just don't know what to do with this, and they basically say that you know, Jesus isn't giving a, how should I word this, a, a thorough, rigorous argument. He's coming up with something quick to make them think to buy himself a little bit of time. Um, and I think John has chosen to include this out of you know, years of spending time with Christ for a very specific reason. I think there, there's probably more to it than something simple like that. Um, but what it is is hard. So here's my, my best effort to, to try to unpack this. You, given that Jesus has a, a special commission for, from, uh, sorry, if I go back a little bit, um, I, th- I think the basic thought goes back to Psalm 82, and we're going to read Psalm 82 in just a second. Um, but in that psalm, it refers to probably a group of judges as gods with a lowercase g. Um, and, and there's questions about even what that psalm is referring to, but if you look at Jewish commentaries from the time, this is what the Jews in that time generally thought that psalm was referring to. So the, the argument is that if Scripture is referring to, to human beings as God's lowercase g, Jesus hasn't gone any further even if he were human. Um, given a special commission by God, it is even more appropriate for himself to speak in that way. You know, the argument is, challenging to our Christian ears because it seems to be saying that it's okay for Christ to speak as he did without actually being God. Um, 
And you know, a number of my favorite commentaries, as I said, kind of find that problematic. So I, I think there's just a little bit more going on. Let's take a look at the, the psalm. Um, it's worth knowing that the psalms would have been sung frequently by devout Jews. And so they would have had many of the psalms memorized, presumably this one. Um, and often when one line from a psalm is quoted, it doesn't just imply that line, but it's implying the context around it. There's no reason to spend paper writing out an entire psalm when someone knows it. You just direct someone to the part of the psalm that's most relevant. So if we listen to the psalm, there are some surprising connections uh, to, to some of the themes in these chapters. I'll just go ahead and read Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and so that's what Jesus is quoting. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So there's a lot of ideas in this psalm that are really relevant to these chapters. One of those that is emphasized is your know, perfect divine judgment, and that's contrasted with the imperfect uh, judgment of this group that's probably being referred to as lowercase g, gods, in here, the, the judges of Israel that don't judge uh, rightly. And so I, I think maybe a better way to think about this um, might be this paraphrase that I'm also getting from Boyce's commentary. Now, like the judges, or so what Jesus is saying is, now, like those judges, I too have been sent into the world, and that by God the Father, and that for a specific task. In that task, I exercise authority and power, just as the judges of Israel did. If the word lowercase g, gods, can be used uh, of mere men because of their function, if judges can be called gods, lowercase g, then how much more should I be called God, uppercase g, in the full sense, since I have received a unique commission and exercise unique power? The crowd should see in Jesus' works you know, something that's a lot more substantial than the judges that are referred to as lowercase g, gods in that psalm. And I think that the connections with the other material in the, these chapters at least to me, I, I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense. Um, so Jesus' final argument is going to point back to his, his works. You know, even if they don't believe Jesus, they should look back to his works and see that they point to his divinity. Um, if you think back to the blind man, the disciples saw him as a theological question, but they didn't help him. The Pharisees saw him as a threat to their position. You know, his parents were even less concerned with him than the, his parents were concerned with their place in the synagogue. It was you know, Jesus that saw him as a person that was in need of healing, both spiritual and physical. And Jesus was able to heal him in both ways. No one else healed him in either way uh, or really was particularly motivated to. And so, that, again, that's how Jesus' works are, are, uh, point back to who he is. So we'll kind of summarize this defense again. We'll finish out these chapters next time and we'll get started on the, the last section that we're going to come to, and that's the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Heavenly Father, 
you know, I, I thank you for the patience that we see in these verses with a world that hates you, a world that's picking up stones to kill you, and you still uh, proclaim your word. You still teach the gospel and show them uh, their sin and their need for you. I thank you that you've shown that same patience with us in bringing us to you, and I pray that we would see you as glorious for what you have done uh, to bring us to a saving knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen.